Well, this morning, I want to have you turn to John 3 for our time of study in God's Word this morning. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of John, and as we continue in our study through this book, we come this morning to John chapter 3, verse uh, 31, and my goal today is to cover verses 31 through 36, and with that, we'll finish John 3. And the title of the message is The Supreme Gravitas of Jesus Christ. The Supreme Gravitas of Jesus Christ. For those of you that are old enough to remember, I want you to think back to September the 11th, 2001. Everyone woke up that morning to what seemed like an ordinary day. They went to work. They talked on their cell phones, making plans for the day and for the week ahead. But then, as we all know, the normalcy was shattered uh, by the two planes slamming into the Trade Center towers and the plane that crashed into the Pentagon and the other plane that went down in Pennsylvania. The events of that day were staggering, and they changed everything, at least in the short term. Suddenly, things that seemed perfectly acceptable were set aside. The Miss America Paget Eve parade that was supposed to happen that week was canceled. The Emmys that were supposed to happen on September 16th were canceled. Late-night comedians ceased telling jokes. Some TV stations even stopped running commercials and provided nonstop coverage of the tragedy without any commercial interruptions. Movie producers rethought the release of their movies in light of the tragedy, and some of the movie releases were postponed. In the political realm, normal partisan squabbling felt out of place. In the face of the unfolding tragedy, none of these things felt appropriate. The following few Sundays across our nation, church attendance increased by 25%. What had happened was that Americans were staring in the face of something of such immense gravitas that it changed them at least for a few weeks. It also changed what they viewed as appropriate and important. That's what happens when people encounter the weighty, the immense. In his commentary on the book of Ephesians, Martin Lloyd-Jones tells how in the early 1900s, the mental institutions in Spain were filled to the brim occupied with people struggling with various disorders and anxieties. But then the Spanish Civil War broke out and the mental homes became largely empty with many of the residents giving evidence of being cured. What happened? What happened was that they encountered something of such immense gravitas 
that these patients were elevated beyond themselves to a greater cause. That's what happens when people encounter the weighty, when people encounter something that is truly bigger than themselves. It changes them, and it puts everything into perspective, and it delivers them in ways that nothing else can. I want to suggest to you this morning that there is nothing of greater gravitas than Jesus Christ. The Hebrew word for glory is the word kavod, which speaks of something that is heavy. In fact, in 1 Samuel, if you read through that book, you'll learn that Eli, the priest, was an overweight man. And the writer of 1 Samuel uses the word kavod to describe him as heavy in 1 Samuel 4.18. That's the basic idea of the Hebrew word for glory. It speaks of something that is heavy. So when the Apostle John speaks of having beheld Christ's glory in John chapter 1, verse 14, part of what John is telling us is that he encountered the weightiness of Jesus Christ. And he and his fellow disciples were forever changed by their encounter with the gravitas of Jesus. As for us, if we could but see the greatness of Jesus Christ, it would change us and reestablish all of our priorities, right? Some things that seemed acceptable and important yesterday would no longer seem acceptable and important today. Things that would have seemed heavy before would now seem light by comparison if we could just encounter and truly behold the weightiness, the gravitas of Jesus. Consider what happened to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. He was pursuing Christians. He hated Christians and was pursuing them to haul them off into prison. But then Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and in his appearance, Christ was brighter than the sun in its noonday strength, so bright that it left Saul blinded for three days. And in that encounter on the Damascus road, Saul of Tarsus encountered the glory, the gravitas of Jesus. Prior to that occasion, Saul thought that he was pretty big stuff. But now he saw himself as small in comparison to Jesus, which is probably why he later took the name Paul, which means small. Paul once was proud of his own righteousness, but after seeing Christ, encountering Christ's glory, and seeing Christ's perfect righteousness, Paul saw his own righteousness henceforth as a pile of manure. Things that seemed to be right and appropriate 
to Saul the day before are now seen for the shocking evils that they were. That's what encountering the glory of Christ will do. Amen? And in our passage today, we are going to get to hear more from a man who clearly apprehended the glory of Jesus Christ. And this man's name is John the Baptist. We saw two weeks ago how John the Baptist's disciples have come to John complaining that it seems that everyone is going to Jesus anymore instead of coming to John the Baptist like they used to. John the Baptist's ministry was all about Jesus and getting people to follow Jesus, but it seems that his disciples, or at least these disciples, were not buying into that vision like they should have. And so John the Baptist hears their complaint, and he responds to his disciples' complaint by uttering four Christ-centered convictions that we studied two Sundays ago. Essentially, these four convictions are as follows. Number one, those coming to Christ and to me are gifts from God. Number two, Jesus is the Christ, not I. Number three, those coming to Christ are his bride, not mine. And number four, Christ must increase, but I must decrease. To put it simply, John the Baptist refuses to compete with Christ for supremacy. And he utters these convictions to explain why he refuses to do so. And as a result of these convictions, John the Baptist is not fuming with small-minded jealousy like his own disciples seem to be doing. And why is he not fuming with jealousy? Because John the Baptist rightly perceived the glory of Christ. So he harbored in a spirit no rivalry with Jesus. And he didn't mind being reduced to nothing so long as Christ was being magnified. The four convictions that John utters in verses 27 to 30 are enough to reveal his mindset Yet John the Baptist is not content to say what we looked at two Sundays ago. He gives us even more in our passage today. In verses 31 to 36, John launches into a mini-sermon on Jesus, a sermon in which he essentially presents or states seven truths. This is how we're going to break down our study of this passage, seven truths which portray or demonstrate the supreme gravitas of Jesus and explain why John the Baptist was all about Jesus and wanting Jesus' fame to increase. And the first of these truths is, let's say it this way, having come from heaven, Jesus is above all. Having come from heaven, Jesus is above all. Observe what John the Baptist says in verse 31. Comparing himself and Jesus to one another, he says, He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. 
He who comes from heaven is above all. Let's stop right there for now. Just so you know who John the Baptist is speaking of here, look at the text. He who comes from above, that's Jesus. He who is of the earth is at the very least John the Baptist himself. For starters, notice in this verse that there are two statements here about where Christ comes from. John the Baptist describes Jesus as he who comes from above and he who comes from heaven. Here in John 3.31, John also says something else twice. Twice he says that Christ is above all, meaning that Christ is above all in rank, above all in greatness, above all in power and in glory, and above all in the virtues of his perfections and in the scope of his prerogatives. Imagine everything and every being put together in the physical and material universe and imagine the heights to which they can attain and all the glory that they may represent and realize that Jesus is above all of that. John is asserting here that Jesus is in a class all by himself, infinitely above all others in rank and in glory. And John the Baptist would include himself in this comparison back in John 1.25. You can write that reference down. I'm sorry, John 1.27. John says that Jesus is of such a higher rank that he, John the Baptist, is not even worthy to render the service of a slave and untie the thong of Jesus' sandal. That's how high Jesus is in John the Baptist's view that he gives expression to here. So ultimately, here in John 3.31, John the Baptist is making two points of comparison between Jesus and every other human being. Number one, Jesus comes from heaven, and everyone else, including John the Baptist, is from the earth. And number two, Jesus is, in fact, a greater and higher-ranking being than everyone else, including John himself. Speaking of everyone else, John the Baptist says, everyone who is of the earth speaks of the earth. To be of the earth is not necessarily a bad thing, but it does indicate limitation. John the Baptist and the rest of us are mere earthlings, and as earthlings, all we can do is speak from the vantage point of our own earthly experience. But Jesus is different. Jesus came from heaven, and John will show us in the next verse how that is significant for the way that Jesus speaks compared to the way the rest of us speak. And this leads us to the second truth that John the Baptist declares about Jesus, which demonstrates the supreme gravitas of Jesus and explains why John the Baptist was all about Jesus and wanting his fame to increase. Truth number two, Jesus speaks 
with the authority of direct heavenly experience. Jesus speaks with the authority of direct heavenly experience. Listen to what John the Baptist says in verse 32 about Jesus. Yes, you and I, we are mere earthlings who speak from the vantage point of our earthly experience. But as for Jesus, who came from heaven, John the Baptist says, what he has seen and heard of that he bears witness and no man receives his witness. Jesus came from heaven and he speaks from that vantage point. In other words, Jesus speaks from his direct heavenly experience. As the commentator Linsky states, and I quote, Jesus has seen all there is to be seen in heaven and can testify accordingly. Jesus has heard all the lovely music and the heavenly language in conversations with God. And Jesus speaks from this amazing reservoir of eternal experience in heaven with the Father. Just think about what an amazing privilege it is for us to have a book containing the words of one whose former residence was heaven from all of eternity past before he came from heaven to earth. And he speaks to us in this book from the vantage point of the things that he knows to be true firsthand in heaven. You would think that the world would fall all over itself to read and to treasure the words of such a person. We have agencies that spend millions and millions of dollars to get to detect the smallest radio signal from somewhere in outer space, from some intelligent being, perhaps. You would think that the world would fall all over itself to hear the words of this one Jesus who came from heaven to earth and who speaks from the vantage point of what he knows to be true in heaven. Yet amazingly, John the Baptist says here in verse 32 that no man receives his witness or his testimony. And at first blush, this might seem to be a very odd thing for John the Baptist to say when, in fact, John's disciples have just said in verse 26 that all are coming to Jesus. But clearly, their claim was an exaggeration in the first place. Also, we saw earlier in this chapter how Nicodemus himself seemed to have a high view of Jesus believing some right things about Jesus and how he even took the time to come to Jesus, to talk to Jesus. Yet in verse 11, Jesus looks at Nicodemus himself and says, you do not accept our testimony. We learned at the end of chapter 2 that many were believing in Jesus' name, but it was only because of the signs that they saw Jesus doing. They weren't really at this point listening to Jesus as they should have been, which is why Jesus, we were told, 
at the end of chapter 2 was refusing to entrust himself over to them. Beyond that, we learn in John's gospel that no one, nobody, merely receives Christ's testimony on their own, but they must be born of God to be able to do so. We're going to learn later in John that no one merely comes to Christ ever on their own, but they have to be drawn to Christ by the Father. It is the Father who does a miracle of grace and draws people to his Son and enables them to receive his testimony. And apart from that miracle wrought in the heart by God, no one receives Jesus' testimony. But as for what Jesus is testifying to, John the Baptist says what he has seen and heard. In other words, what he has seen and heard in heaven, of that he is bearing witness. In other words, when Jesus bears witness, he speaks as one who's been with the Father from all of eternity past, and this sets Jesus apart from everyone else, including John the Baptist. Yes, John the Baptist was an amazing man who was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, but Jesus was in the bosom of the Father from all of eternity past. There is simply no comparing these two men. As one who was with God from the very beginning, Jesus had an eternity's worth of personal experience with the Father. Jesus was the darling of heaven to whom all of heaven's praises were directed. The most celebrated relationship in heaven was the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And God the Son stepped forth from the glory of that relationship and he came to earth and when he speaks on earth John the Baptist is saying he speaks from the body of what he has seen and heard as the second member of the triune Godhead as the commentator William Barclay says when Jesus speaks about God and about heavenly things it is no second-hand tale no information from a secondary source. It is first-hand knowledge from his lips. So given the fact that the voice of Jesus is qualitatively different than all other voices, it is his voice that you and I ought to want to hear. And our response to him and to his voice is absolutely important. And this brings us to the third truth that John the Baptist declares in this passage, which serves to portray the supreme gravitas of Jesus and why John the Baptist was all about Jesus and wanting his fame to increase. Let's word it this way. Truth number three, one's reception of Jesus' testimony is an affirmation of God's truthfulness. One's reception of Jesus' testimony is an affirmation of God's truthfulness. Observe what John the Baptist says in verse 33. He who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. 
Back in this day, if a person wished to give their full approval to a document, they would affix their seal to the bottom or the foot of that document, kind of like how today we put our signature at the bottom of a document that we are signing on to and approving. And this is what John the Baptist is saying that a person is doing when they receive Christ's testimony. You may not have thought about your response to Christ in this way, but this is the way it is. John the Baptist is saying, if you receive Jesus' testimony, if you receive Jesus' words, you are thereby putting your signature to the statement that God is true. So imagine someone coming up to you and giving you a document, and you look at the document and you see the words, God is true. And then you are asked to sign that statement with your signature. Would you sign it? You may say, yes, I absolutely would sign it. How do I sign this document? John the Baptist says, here's how you put your signature on this statement that God is true, by receiving the testimony of Jesus regarding anything that Jesus speaks about. Your reception of Jesus' words is your signature to the statement that God is true. That being the case, then the reverse is also true. We would have to say that if you refuse to receive Jesus' words, you are withholding your signature from the statement that God is true. In fact, what you're doing is even worse than that. Write down the reference 1 John 5.10, where the apostle John says, and I quote, the one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his son. So there you go. If you reject Jesus' testimony, you are not simply refusing to sign the statement that God is true. You are signing another statement, which is God is a liar which means that by rejecting Christ, you are slandering God, publicly calling him out as a liar before men. You may say, well, Pastor Milton, that's not how I view my rejection of Christ. Well, God says, this is how I view your rejection of Christ. And he's the one you will stand before one day. You might say, but I love God and I believe in God. I just don't believe in Christ. But God won't let you get by with that. If you don't believe in Christ, then you don't believe in God and you don't love God. In fact, you're impugning God's integrity and calling him a liar. That's how he views your rejection of his son. Now, why is this so? Well, this leads us to the fourth truth that 
John declares, which explains the supreme gravitas of Christ and serves to explain why John the Baptist was all about Jesus and wanting his fame to increase. And this point will actually be quite quick. But number four, truth number four, Jesus has been sent by God and speaks the words of God. Jesus has been sent by God and speaks the words of God. Listen to what John the Baptist says in verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Notice the word for at the beginning of verse 34 here, telling us that what John the Baptist is now declaring serves to explain why our response to Christ's testimony is tantamount to making a statement about God's integrity. Firstly, John says that Jesus is the witness whom God sent to testify to us. And secondly, Jesus speaks the very words of God himself. So to receive Christ's testimony is to accept the witness that God has sent. And to receive Christ's words is to receive the very words of God. Conversely, to reject Christ is to reject the witness that God has sent. And to reject Christ's words is to reject the very words of God himself. This may all seem like a no-brainer to many of us, but John's assertion here would be stunning to the people who heard him say what he says here in verse 34. There were people in his day who believed in God and thought that they loved God, but they didn't like Jesus and they didn't like what Jesus was saying. And John the Baptist is announcing that there is no such dichotomy to receive Jesus' witness is to receive the testimony of the Father's ultimate witness and to reject Jesus' words is to reject the very words of God himself. You cannot separate the Son from the Father. There's another reason that we know that Jesus is God's witness and that he speaks the very words of God which explains why our response to Jesus is tantamount to a statement about God's integrity. And that brings us to the fifth truth that John the Baptist declares, which points us to the supreme greatness of Jesus. Number five, God gives to Jesus the spirit without measure. God gives to Jesus the spirit without measure. Look again at verse 34, and notice how it ends. John the Baptist speaks of Jesus and says, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he, speaking of God, gives the spirit without measure. Now, some Greek manuscripts make the meaning of the end of this verse even clearer to us by essentially saying this, for he, speaking of God, gives the Spirit without measure to him, speaking of Jesus. While the better manuscripts don't have those extra words to him, these extra words do reflect, I think, John's meaning. Essentially, John is saying 
For Jesus, whom God has sent, speaks the words of God, and we know this because God gives the Spirit without measure to Jesus. How would we as earthlings know that Jesus speaks the very words of God? Answer, because it is obvious that the Father has given to Jesus the Spirit without measure. Back in chapter 1, John the Baptist testified how he saw the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus like a dove and remaining upon him. And once Jesus received the Spirit in this way, what did he do with that power that was bestowed upon him? Amazingly, he went forth and served other people. He did miracles of healing, giving sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and cleansing to the lepers and making the lame able to walk again. And he fed the 5,000 and did so many good things for people that the Apostle John says that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written of all the good deeds that Jesus did. And he did all of these deeds in the power of the Spirit who was given to him. Earlier in John 3, Nicodemus is talking to Jesus and he says, We know that you are a teacher come from God because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. It was clear to Nicodemus and to others that the Spirit of God was upon Jesus, empowering him to perform these miracles and also teaching people the truth that they needed to hear. And it was manifestly obvious that, as John the Baptist says here, look at the text, that God was giving the Spirit to Jesus without measure. Throughout Old Testament history, the Jews understood that God gave his prophets the Spirit in the exact measure that they needed to fulfill their mission. Some prophets were empowered by the Spirit to do more than other prophets were empowered to do. Elijah, for example, did many amazing miracles, whereas other prophets are not ever said to have done any. Some prophets prophesied a whole lot, while other prophets prophesied just a little. They each were given the Spirit in the measure needed to fulfill the calling that God had given to them. Even we as Christians are given the Spirit of God, but not without measure. We're told in Romans 12.3 and in passages like Ephesians 4.7 that God has measured out and he has given to each of us only a portion of what we need to do all that he wants us to do. And not a one of us can say that we have all of the spiritual gifts in and of ourselves to where we're completely sufficient by ourselves. But John the Baptist is saying that Jesus was completely sufficient because the Spirit was given to him without measure. So this is John the Baptist's point here. To receive the testimony of Jesus 
is to put our signature to the statement that God is true. Why is this so? Because God the Father sent Jesus to be his witness to us. And because Jesus, when he speaks, speaks the very words of God. And we know this is true because it is manifestly obvious that God has given to Jesus uniquely the Spirit without measure. Now, why would God give Jesus the Spirit without measure like this? This leads us to the sixth truth that John the Baptist declares, which explains the supreme greatness of Jesus and why John the Baptist was all about Jesus and desired to see his fame increase. Number six, the Father loves Jesus and has given everything into his hand. The Father loves Jesus and has given everything into his hand. In verse 35, John the Baptist says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The Father loves the Son in a unique way, and he's shown his love for his Son by giving all things into Christ's hand to manage however Christ deems appropriate. In ancient times, on occasion, and we actually see this in the Bible, a king might so love someone that he would say to them, ask me for anything and I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. Well, the father loved Jesus so much that he just simply gave Jesus the whole kingdom. He gave Jesus everything, absolutely everything. We know from 1 Corinthians 13 that love believes all things, and we see that kind of loving trust here as well that the Father has toward the Son. In giving all things into Jesus' hands, the Father is showing a staggering amount of trust in Jesus. And how utterly trustworthy must Jesus be for the Father to put all things into his hands in this way. God did not decide to put all things into your hands or into my hands or into the hands of any other person like this, but he did give all things into the hands of Jesus, which includes all power and all dominion and the rights to every single person. The last week and a half or so, I've been hearing some angry people proclaiming their cherished right to kill a child in their womb. And they're saying things like, my body, my choice. Little realizing that the rights to their body have been handed over to Jesus by God, which means that their body belongs to Jesus and he has the right to tell them what they can and cannot do with their body. And the body of the child in their womb 
belongs to Jesus as well. And they don't just have the right to do with that child whatever they wish. But we, before you and I shake our heads at those speaking in this way, let's look at ourselves in the mirror as well. What should strike us to our core is that this Jesus that John the Baptist is speaking about here, this Jesus whom the Father has trusted all things into his hand, is the same person that you and I often refuse to trust. This is the same Jesus from whom we withhold our hearts or withhold some area of our lives. This is the Jesus whom we often refuse to obey because we don't quite trust him like we should. If only we had the eyes to see the Son the way the Father sees him. Amen? We would never have any trouble trusting him and surrendering all things into his hands including this matter of our salvation. The prayer of our hearts ought to be, Father, help me to see Jesus through your eyes so that I might see him as you see him, such that I would see him as utterly worthy of my trust and that I would happily give all things having to do with me into his hands, just as you, Father, have done. In John 13, we observe a really touching moment that provides, I think, a poignant glimpse into the very reason why the Father could so easily trust Christ and surrender all things into his hands. And before I show you this, um, I just want you to take a moment to imagine what you would do if God gave all things into your hands, just here. You have all power, all authority over absolutely everything and can do as you please. What would you do with that power? Well, observe what Jesus does with that power. In John 13, verses 3 through 5, the text says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself about then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Wow. Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. And what does he turn around and do with that endowment? He renders for his disciples the service of a slave, and he washes their feet. 
And I am sure that as the Father beheld Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, that the Father was just bursting with love and appreciation for his Son, perhaps saying to his angels, that's my Son. That's why I love him and trust him so much. That's why it is so easy for me to give everything into his hands, including the task of accomplishing the salvation of sinners. It's when you understand the staggering beauty of Christ's person, his amazing selfless love, and the infinite trustworthiness of his person and the Father's infinite love for him, that you're then set up to understand the seventh and the final truth that John the Baptist declares in our passage today, a truth that portrays the supreme greatness of Jesus and explains why John the Baptist was all about Jesus and pointing people to him. Number seven, believers in Jesus get life, while rejectors of Jesus are under God's wrath. In verse 36, John the Baptist says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So we see here there's two different responses to Jesus, and there is a very different fate tied to each of these responses. First of all, John says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. In other words, if you believe in the Son, Jesus Christ, you have right now eternal life. Present tense. You don't have to wait for some future time to receive this gift of eternal life. You have it right now in this present world. And this gift will be yours for all of eternity. And the essence of this eternal life as we will learn in John 17, is spiritual vitality that is interwoven with relationally knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Then look at the text again. Given that John the Baptist has said that the one who believes has life, we would expect John to say or to speak next of the one who does not believe but instead, he speaks of the one who does not obey. Full in dealing with the various problems that you encounter in your life, the gospel is not the promise that God will orbit around us and help us with our issues. Christianity presents to us the message about a God who introduces someone to us who's infinitely greater than ourselves, whom our lives are now to be all about, thereby rescuing us from our petty ambitions and selfish desires and giving us something infinitely more grandiose to live for. Our hearts are starving for greatness. And this greatness is found in the person of Jesus. If you receive Christ, I promise that you will find him 
infinitely substantial enough to satisfy your heart and to be the Savior that you need. If you don't receive Christ, I promise you that you will find yourself going through life, forcing other people and things to fill the void in your heart that only Christ could have filled. And in the process, you will crush the people around you with your expectations, and you will keep coming up empty, realizing that nothing is substantial enough to satisfy your heart like Jesus can. God has put eternity in your heart, and only a Savior of infinite gravitas can fill that chasm and give your soul what it really needs. So if you have never believed in Jesus, look to him today and believe in him. He alone can satisfy the crushing needs of your soul. Finally, if what John the Baptist is saying about Christ in our passage today is true, then the greatest service that we can render to ourselves is to come to Jesus and encounter the glory of his person. And the greatest service we can render to others is to declare Christ to them so that they too might experience his greatness and his glory. The glory of Christ is the true giant slayer of all the evils that you and I battle against. Because if we could just gain a vision of the greatness of Christ, that vision will profoundly impact everything else. Nothing will have the saving impact upon us like a vision of the greatness of Jesus. Do you need help with your marriage? You do not primarily need a five-step solution. You need a fresh encounter with the glory of Christ. You need help with your lust problem, your drinking problem, your drug problem. What you need more than anything else is an encounter with the glory of God in the person of Christ. How do we get delivered from jealousy or from fear or from bitterness How do we get delivered from sin and self-deception? How do we get delivered from our pettiness and pride in ourselves and in our own righteousness? The answer is a deeper journey into knowing Jesus Christ and being seized with the greatness of his person. Are you nursing grievances for wrongs that someone has done against you? Are the offenses of others against you looming really large and immense before your eyes every day? What you need is a fresh encounter with the glory of Jesus. Once you encounter the weightiness of his glory, those grievances that you once thought so large will be seen in their proper perspective. Indeed, The prescription for all that ails you and me is a greater apprehension of the glory of God in Christ. John Piper says this better than I can. Let me close with this. 
In his book, The Supremacy of God in Preaching, he says, and I quote, people are starving for the greatness of God, but most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. There are far more popular prescriptions on the market, but the benefit of any other remedy is brief and shallow. The greatness and the glory of God are relevant. It does not matter if surveys turn up a list of perceived needs that does not include the supreme greatness of the sovereign God of grace, but that is the deepest need, unquote. And John the Baptist would hasten to say, and that deepest need is met in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord God, we are just so thankful for this passage and for the opportunity that you have given us today to Behold, Jesus, we prayed earlier in this service, Lord, show us Christ, show us Christ, and you have showed us Christ. But we confess, Lord, I confess that there are scales on my eyes, there are are issues with my ability to see the greatness, the gravitas, the glory of Jesus. And we confess this brokenness to you and ask, Lord, that you would look upon us with mercy and that you would touch our eyes and that these scales would fall from our eyes. And if you do nothing else for us, Lord, help us to behold Jesus like we've never beheld him before. For there is a whole tsunami of good that lies downstream of a right apprehension of the greatness and the glory and gravitas of Jesus Christ. Meet us at this point of need, Lord, and answer our prayer. And we ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,